morning, and the title of the sermon this morning is How I Messed Up My Marriage. Hear the word of the Lord from Hosea 2, verses 16 through 20. On that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from your mouth, from her mouth, and they shall be mentioned by name no more. I will make for you a covenant on that day with the wild animals, the birds of the air, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and, the, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety, and I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us ask for God's blessing. O Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would reveal to us the hidden things, that you would teach us the things that are contrary to everything the world teaches us, that you would show us the way to live as those who call themselves Christ followers. We ask that you would do this work in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. I have been unfaithful in my marriage. I made a public commitment. I even took vows in a church before a minister. I swore allegiance and I swore to forsake all others. But then I began to desire other things. I desired what my neighbors possessed, because they seemed to be prospering. But I didn't just desire their stuff, I desired their way of life, their values, their way of thinking, their way of living, not just their stuff. And I desired their way of life and the way of thinking and their values because they seemed better to me. They seemed certainly much more self-fulfilling to me. They seemed certainly much less self-sacrificial to me. And so I lusted after them. I lusted after what my neighbors had. And I messed up my marriage. Now, for those of you who are concerned that your pastor is up here confessing of marital infidelity to my wife of 29 years, let me alleviate your fears. I am not confessing this morning to infidelity to my wife, Michelle, which would be a very serious offense to confess to. But this morning, I'm confessing to an even graver, more serious offense, and that is an offense of cosmic proportions. I'm confessing to spiritual adultery. I'm confessing to unfaithfulness in my marriage, in my relationship to my God. And I'm quite confident this morning that I am not alone in this sin. That everyone in this sanctuary this morning, everyone hearing my voice here or at home or even later on, that you too share in this sin. And based on the prophecy of Hosea, I know for certain that the entire nation of Israel at this time was also engaged in that very offense. Hosea is a book about how Israel messed up its marriage. Its marriage with the living God. 
And this morning in our time together, I want to explore the prophecy of Hosea. I want us to discern what it might be saying to us today, to you and to me, where you're sitting this morning, where you're living in your life. And the way we'll go about that is by using a very simple outline, three-point outline. We'll begin by looking at the prophet, who this man was, and the world in which he was operating and prophesying. So first, we'll look at the prophet. Second, we'll look at the problem. That is, what was this prophet addressing? Why did God send this prophet? What was the purpose? What was the problem he was seeking to address? And then thirdly and finally, we'll look at the prescription. That is, what was the solution to the problem offered by God through this prophet to the people of God? How did the prophet prescribe the fix the problem? So the prophet, the problem, and the prescription, that will be our outline this morning. So let's begin with the prophet. What do we know about Hosea? Well, we don't know a whole lot, and that will be the case many times in this, so this will be a short point. We know that he lived in the early part of the 8th century B.C., uh, that his ministry extended over uh, a long period of time. If you read verse 1 of the prophecy, it tells us it extended over four kings. Most scholars believe this was a decades-long type of ministry that he had. We know that he ministered in a time of the divided kingdom. There were two kingdoms in Israel. There was a northern kingdom called Israel or Ephraim sometimes. It's how it's referred to in the prophecy. And then there was a southern kingdom of Judah. And although Hosea impacted both of these, his main target, his primary focus was on the unfaithfulness of the northern kingdom of Israel or Ephraim. And he was a citizen of that kingdom. We know that too about him, which makes him unique among the 16 writing prophets. He was a citizen of Israel. And that's it. That's really all we know about the prophet Hosea. And we don't know a whole lot about the world in which he ministered, the time, what was going on in Israel. All we really know about that time is that it was a good time for Israel. They were prosperous, and they were growing, and it was a good time of of prosperity for the people. But there was this constant threat that they were facing from the Assyrians, who were the greatest empire of the time. And there was this threat of an invasion. And by the, near the end of the 8th century, that invasion did occur in 722 B.C. But Hosea wasn't primarily concerned with the Assyrians. That was not the biggest threat with which he was dealing. Instead, the threat was not external, it was internal. The greatest enemy that Hosea saw for Israel was Israel itself. We have seen the enemy and it is us. The threat was internal. And that brings us to the main problem, point number two. The problem. So what was that internal threat? What was the primary problem this prophet was sent to address? Well, I raised it in my introduction this morning. It's that problem of spiritual adultery, of unfaithfulness to God, a basic lack of love for God. One of the reasons I love the prophets is because the prophets are the closest thing to lawyers in the books, in the Bible, really. 
They are the lawyers of the Bible. They come, they're sent by God as a representative, as an advocate. They come to uh, bring a lawsuit, God's lawsuit, a covenant lawsuit against the people. And so if you read the prophets, you will find somewhere in there something akin to a modern legal complaint or an indictment, a place where God says, here's the charge that I have against you. And Hosea does that in chapter 4, verse 1. This is the indictment. This is the charge. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. And here it is. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. That was the problem that was there and Hosea was sent to address. But the way God proposed to address that particular concern, to bring it to the attention of the people, was both extraordinary and controversial. Tim alluded to it this morning. So how did God bring this to the attention of the people, that their problem was spiritual adultery, spiritual infidelity, spiritual promiscuity? How did He bring that to their attention? Well, we're told in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer. That's how God proposed to bring this to the attention of the people. As Tim was talking about, making Hosea an object lesson. Their problem was spiritual promiscuity, so God calls Hosea to make it known to the people by marrying a promiscuous spouse. Now, a lot of people have problems with that. With God's methodology, how God chose to make this known to His people. And it's kind of odd because the people who have problems with it, they're they're strange bedfellows, let's put it that way. There's two main groups who don't like what God did here. One group are certain theological conservatives, I'll use that term. And their problem with this methodology is that how could God ask his prophet to do something unethical or that seems to be contrary to the law of God, and that is taking for yourself a a spouse who is promiscuous. Uh, You know, you see it, Calvin had a problem with this. He talked about elders and bishops and, you know, and pastors. Would you want your pastor to have a promiscuous spouse? How could God ask this of his prophet? It can't be right. So they had a problem with it. The other group that has a problem with this methodology of God, how God chose to bring it to the people's attention, are feminist interpreters of the Scripture, at least some of them. Their problem with this is that they think it justifies what happens here in Hosea, justifies abuse of women within marriage. And the argument goes like this. Gomer, Hosea's wife, is described as an unfaithful one, right? And that unfaithfulness is connected to her sexuality. And this makes her the subject or the object of discipline or correction or even violence to control her behavior, to punish her for her transgressions. And even though they'll acknowledge that the Scripture itself is talking about this in a metaphorical sense, they are worried that people will lose the metaphor. One 
feminist scholar writes this, the metaphorical character of the Bible, of the biblical image, is forgotten and a husband's physical abuse of his wife becomes as justified as is God's retribution against Israel. So you see, some people have problems with what God does here, and we need to wrestle with that. They are real and understandable problems. And I don't have all the answers, but I have a few things that we could consider to think about that might help us to grapple with or to better understand or to better contextualize the text. So how would I answer those concerns? Well, one thing we should think about is how should we read this book? How should we read it? Because you can read it in a different way, right? One way you can read it is a straightforward manner, that all of this stuff actually happened in exactly the way that it's presented to us in the Scripture. And many will argue that that's the way you should read it, that that's the way the book presents itself. Everything happened, literally happened. But there is another class of interpretation that perhaps what we have here is something symbolic, something metaphorical. I think everyone would argue at some level this is metaphorical. And so one of the questions we can ask ourselves is what is really going on here? Is this a book trying to teach us about marital relations and how we treat our spouse? Or is something else going on? And you could, you could view it as both, right? Both straightforward and symbolic. Like many of the things that Jesus did. So we want to be thoughtful about how we read this. Uh, John Goldingay, an Old Testament professor, talks about this as an enacted parable. I like that idea. Just like Jesus' parables, there are true and real things Jesus uses to make a spiritual point, but often it involves some level of, of hyperbole, right, to make that point, to get to the point. And I think that's going on in this book here. Secondly, a thing we could consider is that this text does not demand that Gomer was sexually promiscuous. It talks about promiscuity, yes, it uses that illusion, but the unfaithfulness here of Israel was not the problem in Israel, was not that they were being sexually promiscuous, it was that they were being theologically promiscuous, that they were being spiritually unfaithful. And so at one level, any daughter of Ephraim, any daughter of Israel, would themselves be part of this problem of spiritual unfaithfulness. It's quite possible that her problem had nothing to do with her sexuality. And then third and finally, we need to consider that if we buy all the historical context, then at this time, in this patriarchal society, it was the men who were responsible for the covenant faithfulness of the nation. And so in this allusion, in this metaphor, Gomer the wife stands for the men of Israel. The target of this message, if you want to argue it properly, the audience for it were not the women of Israel, but the men of Israel who were acting in spiritual unfaithfulness, leading their homes in spiritual unfaithfulness. The target is the males of that society. Now, that doesn't solve all the problems. There are parts of this book, if you were to read it with modern ears, it would strike you as, as harsh and difficult. But let me just say this. If you read this book in faithfulness before God, its message is not about the abuse of a spouse. Its message is about God's commitment, His love, his desire to restore a spouse. God doesn't abuse his spouse. 
There's no way one could read that and come to that conclusion. God does not abuse his spouse, and nor should any Christian abuse theirs. And if any of you, anybody here listening to my voice or home or somewhere later on, if you are living in a Christian marriage and your spouse is trying to justify abuse based on the Scriptures, they are in error. There's no reason you should accept it or live with it, and you don't deserve it. And there are ways to end it. We have a great organization here in our town, Willow, 585-222-SAFE. It's a place where you can get help. And there's a national hotline, 1-800-799-SAFE. Nowhere does a scripture support the abuse of a spouse, and this book doesn't either. With that in mind, with the methodology and the problems around it, and I will grant that there are challenges and difficulties with it, let us think about the heart of the problem, of which there is no ambiguity. The heart of the problem is this spiritual adultery. So what was that all about? How did that problem manifest itself in the lives of the people? Well, it's not that Israel simply forsook Yahweh. It's not that they forsook their God, that they stopped worshiping Yahweh and replaced Yahweh with another God. The problem for them was kind of like a spiritual polyamory. That is, they began to covet and desire another's God. They got tired of the same old partner, and so they decided to bring another person, another God, little g, into their marriage. In other words, they engaged in what is known as syncretism. Now, what's syncretism? It's a big fancy word, but I can illustrate it in a, sim a simple way. It's this. You know what this is? By the way, this is not product placement. I'm not getting any of it. And by the way, Hershey's peanut butter cups are wonderful. <laughs> I'm not saying anything bad about them. Using it only as an illustration. But you know, you saw those commercials. What is this? It's the amalgamation of two wonderful things, right? Peanut butter and chocolate mixed together. That's what syncretism is. It's the amalgamating or bringing together of two things, right? Particularly in the area of theology, it is bringing together God and another God. Or the true religion with a false religion. And it was there in the Old Testament, it's there in the New Testament. Paul was dealing with the same problem in his epistles, the problem of syncretism, of mixing things together. And it's a much more dangerous thing than merely replacing one with the other. And so what Israel was doing at this time is that they were mixing together Yahweh and Baal. And they were really clever about it. I mean, you've got to admire them. Let me give you an example of how they did this. It's in the first verse of our text this morning, verse 16. On that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Isn't that interesting? You all know who Baal is, right? The God of the Canaanites. You all know who the Canaanites are. The bad guys of the Bible, right? These are the people that are, you know, the worst of the worst, the people you are not supposed to imitate, and certainly you're not supposed to worship their God. 
Baal, the god of, for them, for the Canaanites, a god of prosperity, a god who made sure your crops grew. So what are the Israelites doing using the name of Baal as a name for God? God says there, on, the first, on that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. They were calling God my Baal. Now what were they doing? Well, here's how cute their syncretism was, how clever it was. You see, that word in Hebrew, Baal, can be used for the name of the false god, the Canaanite god, but it also means in Hebrew, my master. So here's what the Hebrews were doing, the Israelites were doing. They were saying to themselves, hey, we don't have to change up our religion. We don't have to even call on the name of a different god. We'll just call God Baal. We get two-for-one deal, right? God is our master. And we can kind of sneak this, our other new religion in at the same time, right? Syncretism, little chocolate in the peanut butter. That's what they were doing. But the question is, why would they do this? After all God had taught them, why would they do such a foolish thing? And why would they think God would accept it? Why do you think they did it? I mean, you look at it on its face, right? It's stupid. It's illogical. You know where it's going to end. Why would they do it? For the same reason each and every one of you and me and you at home, for the very same reason you do it and I do it. Why? Because we want to prosper. <laughs> we want to be popular, right? We want the things that other people have. And just like Israel, we are willing to hedge our bets a little bit to get it. So we worship other gods. Their mindset was no different than our mindset. We behave in almost identical ways. They wanted to prosper. How do you prosper? Well, you get good crops. How are you going to get good crops? Well, you know, we can rely on Yahweh, but hey, he might not come through for us. So let's hedge our bets a little bit. Let's go to those Canaanites. They have this God of crops and prosperity and fertility. Let's do that just in case God God does not provide for us. And we do the very same thing all the time. They did it for the very same reasons we do it. Isn't it better to have both? We want to prosper too. And so we look to our neighbors, we look at their gods, and before you know it, we're calling God by a different name. And we're just like them. We don't trust God enough to bet our lives solely on Him. So we fool around on the side. Gary Smith writes this. He says, The tendency is for people of all ages to misunderstand where life, prosperity, meaning, and hope for the future come from. Can people really believe that God alone is sufficient to provide for all their needs? If people cannot trust God to meet their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs, then they will naturally look to other things just as the Israelites looked to Baalism. We are no different. And so the question that this prophecy probes into our heart, the one it presses in home on us this, question, this morning, is to ask ourselves, what are we looking to? To whom are we looking for our well-being? 
In whom are we placing our trust? Really, the question I want you to ask yourself is, what is the name of your lover? The name of your divine paramour? Your mistress? What is his name or her name? And right now, you could be thinking about that very thing as you're listening to this sermon. Where does your mind go? Where does your heart go? Where does your money go? In whom do you invest your life and trust in? I really want you to think about it and ask that question. What is the name of your God? Who is your master? And here's where it gets dangerous and how it got dangerous for Israel is that once you start doing that, once you start bringing in this other God into your marriage, into the relationship, you begin to confuse things a lot. That happened for Israel. You kind of forget, well, what was Yahweh saying? What was Baal teaching? And they kind of get jumbled together and you really can't discern or distinguish anymore. The deeper you get into this affair, you lose discernment. Again, Gary Smith proves helpful. He says Israel's problem was that they gradually allowed theological ideas and practices from the Canaanite religion, the religion of Baal, to mix with their vague memories of biblical teachings. This mixing too resulted in many people seeing no difference between Baal and Yahweh. Israel's faith was adapted into Canaanite culture rather than transforming Canaanite culture. Our whole denomination, our whole history of Reformed theology, the unique Reformed accent of the Christian Reformed Church has been about this idea that God's kingdom should transform the culture. That we believe in transformation. And so, particularly for us, the greatest danger is that instead of transforming that culture, we be conformed to it. That it transforms us. That's what Israel was dealing with at this time. That was their problem, and it's the greatest problem we have in the church today. We lose our discernment because we've made a mess of our marriage. It was their problem. It's ours. So the last question is, how do we fix it? How do we save our marriage? And this brings us to point number three, the final point, the prescription. What was the solution that the prophet offered to fix this problem? A problem I have tried to argue that we have too, that matters to us. How do we save our marriage? Well, I did what every normal good 21st century person would do, I googled it. How to save your marriage. First thing that came up was a website called Choosing Therapy, and it gave me 10 tips. Here they are. Use kindness when discussing a conflict of interest. Be gentle with your spouse. Be aware of your own feelings. Know when to take a break. Scan for the positives. Listen with empathy. Stay away from criticism. Give each other space. Practice self-care. And unsurprisingly, given the website's name, seek couples therapy. Now, while all of those things may be good advice for saving our earthly marriage, they will not save this divine marriage. They will not fix what I'm talking about this morning. 
But they do reveal to us something important for us to understand if we're going to fix our marriage. And that is, we tend to believe as humans that we can fix everything. We are people, a species that loves self-help. You can tell that by walking through any bookstore. We tend to think we can fix things. And man, I want to fix things. Don't you want to fix things? I see something that's broken and I want to fix it. And the hardest thing as a pastor is to see the brokenness of our world, the brokenness of people, the brokenness of problems, and knowing I can't fix it. It makes me weep sometimes. I wish I were Jesus and I could fix this, but I can't. Because I'm not. There's some things in this world that we can't fix, and one of them is our marriage with God. Because we lack the capability to do it. I had this uh, wonderful vacation recently up in Lake Placid. And one of the days we were there, we went to this uh, gorge, these beautiful gorges that were there. And, you know, that river, that water is just flowing down with such ferocity over those, oh, those great granite stones and just pouring out, you know, and you see that working of, of erosion and the smoothness and what this water is doing and the power that it has and the noise that it makes and the foaming of it all. And I'm looking down from this bridge as I'm over this gorge and there's this, you know, it's all coming into this one point and it's come in there so much that you have this hollowed out hole that looks like a barrel of a gun that's, you know, perfectly shaped and sanded down and, and all the water is pouring into this one thing and I'm looking down at it and I see this little t- trout, I think it was, and it, jumping out and trying to go against the current, trying to get up, you know, and it, it couldn't do it. And it won't ever be able to do it. It can't do it. And that's what the Scripture tells us about ourselves spiritually, that we can't fix this. We can't do this on our own. So does that mean we're doomed to live in spiritual unfaithfulness to God? Well, no, because Hosea tells us how it will get fixed. Listen to our text again. On that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. How will this happen? God will do it. For I, God, will remove the names of Baals from her mouth and they shall be mentioned by name no more. I will make a covenant for you, a covenant on that day with the wild animals. And I will abolish the bow and the sword. And I will make you to lie down in safety. And I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Spiritual adultery is our problem, but only God can fix it. And Hosea tells us and promises us that he will fix it. That's how the gospel comes to us through the prophet Hosea. That's where the good news is. God has has vowed to fix what we cannot fix, to provide what we can never provide. Righteousness, justice, steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness. And beloved, where do we find those five attributes? In whom do we find those five attributes? We find them in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus fixes our marriage. Jesus saves our marriage. 
Paul writes in Ephesians, he's the one who makes us, the church, holy and without blemish. He redeems us. We can't do it on our own. How can you save your marriage with God? You trust in God's sufficiency for your life. You trust in Jesus Christ. You stop hedging your bets. You stop serving Baal. And you give yourself to God. I could put it this simply. You fall in love with God. Fall in love with Him. How do you stay true to your spouse? You love them. You love them. How do you stay true to God? You love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Let me close my sermon this morning with an excerpt from a book. It's a book uh, entitled, Everything Sad is Untrue, a True Story. It's written by Daniel Nairi. It was a New York Times bestseller may still still be a book i commend to you i became aware of it because my wife read it to me on that very vacation and part of it this excerpt of it uh, through tears she read it to me the book is about a family of iranian refugees who ultimately end up in oklahoma the book is considered YA literature. You actually have to find it in the children's section. I don't understand that. Its themes are anything but childish. But this is the story he tells about his mother, Seema. She was once a successful and prosperous medical doctor in Iran. And she once served other gods. But then she fell in love. Here's what he writes. My mom was a Sayyid from the bloodline of the prophet. In Iran, if you convert from Islam to Christianity or Judaism, it's a capital crime. That means that they find you guilty in religious court, they kill you. But if you convert to something else like Buddhism or something, that, then it's not so bad, probably because Judaism and Christianity and Islam are sister religions and you always have the worst fights with your sister. And probably nothing happens if you're just a six-year-old, except if you say, I am a Christian now in your school. Chances are the committee will hear about it and raid your house, because if you're a Christian now, then so are your parents probably. And the committee does stuff way worse than killing you. When my sister walked out of her room and said she'd met Jesus, my mom knew all that. And here is the part that gets hard to believe. Seema, my mom, read about him and became a Christian too. Not just a regular one who keeps it in their pocket. She fell in love. She wanted everyone to have what she had to be free, to realize that in other religions you have rules and codes and obligations to follow, to earn good things. But all you had to do with Jesus was believe he was the one who died for you. And she believed. When I tell the story in Oklahoma, this is the part where the grown-ups always interrupt me. They say, okay, but why did she convert? Because up to that point, I've told them about the house with the birds in the walls, all the villages my grandfather owned, all the gold, my mom's own medical practice, all the amazing things she had that we don't have anymore because she became a Christian. 
All the money she gave up, so we're poor now, but I don't have an answer for them. How can you explain why you believe anything? So I just say what my mom says when people ask her. She looks them in the eye with the begging hope that they'll hear her, and she says, because it's true. Because it's true. Why else would she believe it? It's true and it's more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and 10 years of education to get a medical degree and all your family and a home and the best cream puffs of Jolfa and even maybe your own life. My mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. If you believe it's true and that there is a God and he wants you to believe in him and he sent his only son to die for you, then he has to take over your life. It has to be worth more than everything else because heaven's waiting on the other side. That or Seema's insane. There's no middle. You can't say it's quirky thing that she thinks about sometimes because she went all the way with it. If it's not true, she made a giant mistake, but she doesn't think so. She had all the wealth, the love of all the people she helped in her clinic. They treated her like a queen, and she's poor now. People spit on her on buses. She's a refugee in places where people hate refugees, with a husband who hits harder than a second-degree black belt because he's a third-degree black belt, and she'll tell you it's worth it. Jesus is better. It's true. We can keep talking about it, keep grinding our teeth on why Seema converted since it turned the fate of everybody in the story. It's why we're hiding in Oklahoma. We can wonder and question and disagree. You can be certain she's dead wrong, but you can't make Seema agree with you. It's true. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. You want to save your marriage. Stop hedging your bets. Stop serving Baal. Give yourself to God. Trust in the sufficiency of God for your life. Fall in love. Fall in love with God. Because it's true. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see as you see. Give us hearts to love as you love. And give us the courage to trust in you. That you would be sufficient for us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.